Good morning. You guys glad to be here? I cannot stand to miss a week. Uh, because of the uh, weather, we're finishing up. Some of you might have arrived today thinking, I heard they were going to do a series on relationships and marriage. Well, we are, but it'll start next week uh, instead. And we'll kind of have to combine a couple of uh, thoughts together. <laughs> but uh, we've been doing this series called The Holy Places. And uh, I could not do today. I could not fail to do today. Couldn't let the series end without us finishing off talking about our topic today. If we had had to scrap the whole next series, I would have done it just to do today because of the weather. We've been doing this thing called the, uh, the Holy Places, and the reason we were doing it, we entered into a new year, and uh, I kind of had this uh, thought in mind that most of us probably weren't completely thrilled with last year with all of our choices, with all of our attitudes, and just maybe all of us would like to have our lives to be holier places in this year, in 2010. So what we've been doing is focusing on that by looking at the tabernacle in the wilderness and trying to learn some lessons from the tabernacle. If you've been here every week, you've seen this picture every week. We've got a, a picture of a painting uh, that uh, we have been looking at. <clears throat> the uh, theme verses that we have been using are connected with God giving instruction to Moses about how to build this thing in the Old Testament called the tabernacle. And uh, here's what God told Moses to do. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. The word tabernacle literally means to dwell or a dwelling. Make this tabernacle in all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. God is telling him, don't deviate one bit. I want you to do it exactly the way I have shown you to do it. I think there are reasons for that. A lot of it is because of the meaning and the types and the pictures of things in the tabernacle that we've been looking at. I think that's probably why God said, don't deviate from the pattern whatsoever that I give you. God tabernacled among men when they built this. He came in His presence that was seen in that glory cloud coming down in the tabernacle you saw a moment ago, represented God living among men. He did that in the tabernacle later on in the temple until uh, His people messed up so bad, He just decided to leave the temple. And then they didn't have His presence there. God forbid that we'd ever come to church and never ever have the presence of God with us. Or that we live our lives outside the walls of what we think of a church building without the presence of God directing our lives. Now for you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, that means maybe you need to do something today to make the first step toward your life being a holy life. If you know Him as Savior, maybe you just need to be reminded that He wants your life to be a holy life. 
Because you see, when you hit the New Testament, Jesus came and God tabernacled among men in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And then after Jesus went to the cross, died for our sins, took His life back up, ascended, sat down at the right hand of God where He's praying for us today, those of us who believe in Him, the Bible says He comes to inhabit our lives and He lives inside of us, so God still tabernacles among men. He tabernacles in this world in the lives of believers. And that's why our lives need to be holy places for him we've been looking at the various elements and there's a diagram we've looked at every week of the uh, tabernacle that i laid out let me just walk through it to get where we're going today the uh, gateway represents an entrance there's only one way into the tabernacle jesus is our one way into the presence of god once you went through the gate, there's an altar. And that altar was a place of death, a place of sacrifice. That gives us a type or a picture of Jesus Christ going to the cross and dying there and shedding His blood for our sins. Beyond that, you have this basin, this bronze or brass basin <coughs> that contained water in it. And that gives us a picture of the Bible reflecting who we are and what we look like. If you look down into something shiny with water in it, you see your own reflection. But it also represents how God wants to clean our lives through Jesus and through applying His Word to our lives. You go back into something that was called the holy place, the first room, the first section in the main part of the tabernacle was called the holy place. On the right-hand side, there was a table with bread on it. That represents that God wants to feed us upon His Word. Across on the other wall, there was a lampstand made of gold. That represents how God wants to take His Word to illuminate our lives and guide our lives. And then the last thing that we looked at was this. <clears throat> There's this altar of incense, which represents a place of acceptable prayer before God. And we need to be spending time in communion with Him. Guys... Get this, and please get this very well. Being a Christian involves more than just saying, all right, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe in Him. Now I can live however I want to live, and one day I'll go to heaven. Christianity is having a relationship with the Holy God through Jesus Christ. That means we need to be communing with Him, talking with Him, allowing Him to speak to us through His Word. It's not an insurance policy against hell he sent his son to die on the cross so we could actually commune with him and i hope that will be real clear after today that gets us to where we're going today because in something called the holies of holies or the most holy place and by the way that is a type or a picture just entering into that room of heaven where the very presence of god dwelled in that particular time there you would find something called the mercy seat. It was found on the Ark of the Covenant. It was an ark or a chest made of gold. Had poles that ran through it. Had angels or cherubim made of gold that were on top of this mercy seat cover. And they had their wings spread out over it with their faces looking down toward the mercy seat. What we're going to talk about today is this. We're going to talk about how you and I, if we really want to have different lives, we need to understand what God's mercy is all about. 
You will need mercy in 2010. Matter of fact, we're far enough into it now because of weather and everything else. You probably already realize you need mercy. I'm glad, aren't you? The Bible says His mercies are new every morning. I find myself needing that. See, if you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, that first step is you understanding you can't have mercy and grace by trusting in Christ as your Savior. But those of us that already know Christ as our Savior, guess what? We are going to need to know where we can find mercy in this coming year. Why am I saying that? Because probably with our best resolutions and best goals and everything else we might have, we are still stinking human beings, and you and I are going to screw up some in 2010. And when we screw up, instead of feeling like God has forsaken us, and we have so messed up that we just don't have a chance with God, we've already blown our chance for our lives to be holier places in the coming year. Instead of having that kind of attitude, you need to understand there is a merciful God in heaven. You will need and I will need to know where to find mercy in 2010. You've probably already flipped in your updates and you've noticed probably it looks different than we've been doing all this year. We started out through Christmas and everything else with a new format on our updates, on our handout, pretty colors on the outside and everything else. I intentionally this time, and I know it has the date of last week, um, I'm sorry, we're trying to be good stewards, same thing, pretty much that we're announcing this week. But if you'll notice, it's pretty much just bland everywhere else, grayscale. Until you look on the inside cover, and you'll find red representing blood. We did that intentionally. I wanted that to be the main focus of anything you think about today. And also, if you will notice, there are no fill-in-the-blanks. That doesn't mean, oh, I can kick my mind in neutral, and I don't have to keep up with the blanks. What it means is I felt like the Scriptures and what we're going to talk about today was so holy that I just couldn't bring myself to do the normal points and fill-in-the-blanks as normal. I don't think you need to take notes. I think you need just to experience today. What in the world was this mercy seat? What was the description of it? What is this mercy seat? What did it look like? I mean, the mercy seat, if we were to try and describe it, what would it look like? Well, the Bible gives us a pretty good description of it. As we're going to talk about this, mercy for a new life, a different life. Look what the Bible says here in Exodus. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long. By the way, I'm just going to read through all these, and we'll come back and, and talk about it some of the other verses on the screen. In one and a half cubits wide, in one and a half cubits high, you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out, you shall overlay it. You shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And two rings should be on one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. 
And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark and carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. Now, lest I fail to remember to say anything about this later as I break it down some, there's a pretty good reason for that. And that is if you touched it anywhere other than these poles, you'd die. When they would break camp and move from one place to the other, the priest had to carry it using these poles. God had already forewarned that. One time David thought, well, you know what? You know, we're going to bring the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Instead of it being in the tabernacle, they were bringing it into Jerusalem to set it up there. And as they are bringing it on the way in a cart... God didn't tell them to bring it in a cart. He said, carry it on the poles. It started to move a little bit, and a man just good-hearted reached over trying to stabilize it. He touched it, and he died. And I've heard people think, how in the world could God do that? God had already told them, don't touch it. See, I don't have a problem with God keeping His Word, do you? Matter of fact, if God didn't keep His Word, that's when I'd have a problem. That's why we're told that these poles are to stay in place. You shall put into the ark of the testimony which I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim at one end and one cherubim at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim of one piece with a mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony talking about the Ten Commandments, which I will give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. That's a description of it. Now, it's called a mercy seat in the New American Standard updated version. The NIV actually called it this. Next slide, please. Make an atonement cover. An atonement cover of pure gold. An atonement, a place that atonement is made. A place that we can be made at one with God. A place that our sins can be dealt with. Now I'm going to break down all those verses that we just looked at and talk about some various elements that we can find there. And let me point out to you, in case this is your first Sunday, you might be wondering, what is this chair all about? This chair has been over near where the Congos are right now, all through the series. And this chair has just been there to kind of give us a contemporary picture of the mercy seat. Not made of pure gold. It's not made like it should. You'll see that in just a moment. We'll give you some close-up pictures of what people think it looked like. But this, I want you to understand, is here representing the mercy seat. When we think about the mercy seat, all the verses that we just read about a moment ago dealing with the mercy seat, as we think about it, I want you to notice what the construction of it was. The construction of the mercy seat was gold and wood. 
And as we have said several times in this study of the tabernacle, the construction of these things being made of acacia wood and overlaid with bronze or overlaid with gold represent the deity of Christ. The wood represents the humanity of Jesus. The gold represents the glory or the deity of Jesus Christ. That's why it was constructed of this wood and gold. It was carried on the two poles, as I said a moment ago, for a very good reason. If you tried to carry it any other way, if you touched it, you were going to die. But did you notice in the verses I read a moment ago, it said the poles were to stay in place. They were always to be there. Why? Because if someone did try to move it without the poles, they would die. I think that might just be a picture or a type of this. The Bible tells us that Jesus is to be lifted up. And if we would look to Him, we can be healed of our sin. We can be forgiven when Jesus is lifted up. Just like they lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, we are told that Jesus is to be lifted up on a pole. Guys, can I tell you something? Without Jesus being on the cross, you and I are dead. Without Jesus being on the cross, we have no hope whatsoever. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We have no chance to come into the presence of a holy God if Jesus were not lifted up on the cross and on a pole. We better keep Jesus as our only hope, our only sacrifice. We better always remember what Jesus did for us. I think that is pictured in the fact that these poles, the Bible said, God told Moses to be sure those poles are always in place. We better be sure in our churches and in our doctrine and in our theology that Jesus shedding His blood on the cross is always in place. Because without it, we have no hope. Without that, people are dead. The mercy seat itself represents... By, by the way, go ahead and bring the pictures up. The mercy seat itself, that's one picture, and that's not the real thing, guys. It's just a, uh, an artist's conception of it. I actually like the way that one looks better than the other one, but I'm going to show you the other one, uh, too, here. Um, by the way, we don't know where that is. Uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark did not find it, by the way. Um, and I, personally, I don't think God will necessarily ever let man find it because they'd set it up and worship it like some doggone idol if they were to find it. But that just gives you a little bit of an image of what it looked like. The mercy seat, if you remember what God said in those verses we read a moment ago, He said, the mercy seat is the place that I will meet with you. It represented His presence. And on the Day of Atonement, we're going to talk about this in detail a little bit later in the message, but on the Day of Atonement, it was where the blood was applied. On that mercy seat, between the two angels, the high priest went back and sprinkled blood there. And we'll talk more about that later. You've got the angels, the cherubim, on either side of it. Hovering over their wings, covering over the mercy seat. And God specifically said that their faces are to be turned toward the mercy seat, the place that the blood was to be applied. I've never heard anyone else say this. Maybe someone has. I'm not saying it's all original with me, but I've not found it anywhere as I've looked at types and pictures of things in the tabernacle. But I prayed over this, and the more I looked at it, God gave me this thought. Just maybe that's a picture of the angels of heaven looking down from heaven and seeing the Son of God shed His blood on the cross for our sins. Imagine how they must have felt. The eternal Son of God 
God the Father sent God the Son for a bunch of screw-ups like us. And the angels of heaven understood that and do it. And yet they are there looking down, no doubt maybe wondering, why in the world is this happening? Why is Jesus, the Son of God, having to suffer and shed His blood? And the angels of heaven can look over into it, but they can't understand it because they don't need grace. They can't sing amazing grace. We're the sinners. We're the ones that need amazing grace. And those angels from heaven look down to see what Jesus did for us as he was shedding his blood on the cross for our sins. Are you getting a holy picture of this? Of what this means, of what's pictured here? If you go back in Exodus and start reading about God giving the instructions of how to make the tabernacle, the first thing that He tells them, the first piece of furniture He tells Moses to build is this mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant. Why does that come first in God's order? Why, when God gives the instructions of how to build things, does God give this instruction first, how to build the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat? Here's why. It's the most important element and all the tabernacle. Because it represented where God's presence existed, and it was a place where the blood was going to be applied. Don't forget that today. It's the place where the blood was going to be applied. That's why it was given first. What was inside of it then? God said, I'm going to give you some stuff to put inside. You've already seen part of it was going to be the Ten Commandments. I'll deal with that in just a moment. But he said, the testimony that I'm going to give you. But the Bible lets us know there were some other things underneath that mercy seat inside the Ark of the Covenant. One was Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff that budded. We don't have time this morning to go read all the background, but let me just kind of tell you the story. What happened back in Numbers chapter 16 and 17 is that some people kind of got rebellious. Well, why does God just have to speak to Moses and Aaron? Why can we not be priests ourselves? Why is it just Aaron and his family? Why is it just Aaron and his sons? Why can't we be priests? Why can't each tribe have their own priests? So they're kind of this rebellion going along. So God kind of came up with this concept and told Moses to tell him this. Bring me a staff from each one of the tribes, and we will take them in and put them before the Lord in the holy place. And then we will go back in, and the one that buds is the one that God has given His approval to. They all bring their staffs, thinking, I want to be the priest. I'm tired of listening to Aaron. And their staffs are placed there before God. And then when they go back in the next day, guess whose staff had budded? Matter of fact, it had done more than bud. It had flowers on it and even had almonds growing on it. And all the rest of them were just still dead wood. Aaron's staff. That was God giving approval to Aaron, showing all the rest of the tribes quit trying to rebel. This is the one that's the high priest. And by the way, before you start making an analogy toward that between pastors and things like that today, that is not remotely what is going on because I'm not your high priest. Jesus is. Jesus is your high priest. Selected and chosen by God the Father. And if you'll not have Him as your high priest, you don't have a high priest. 
You're left without a Savior, without any hope if you don't have Him. Also inside the Ark of the Covenant, underneath this mercy seat, was a pot of manna. In the story behind that in Exodus, God had been graciously providing manna from heaven, food from heaven that they could feed upon as they're traveling through the wilderness. They get sick and tired of their diet. I mean, kind of like spoiled kids, you know? You ever have that happen at home? Oh, we had that last week, or that's leftovers. We had it before. I'm sorry, if I didn't eat leftovers and pinto beans and stuff like that, I would have starved when I was growing up. And you've got these little spoiled brats and the children of Israel that's out there in the wilderness forgetting that God had brought them out of bondage, forgetting all that God had done for them to get them out of Egypt, and now they're out there complaining and criticizing God and Moses because all they have to eat is a stinking manna. So God did give them another diet. He gave them quails till it ran out of their nose, and then they're sick of the quail. But this pot of manna represents rebellion. Aaron's staff that budded represented their rebellion. Also found in the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, the tablets that God gave the commandments on. Stored there. Which is a picture of our rebellion. I want to remind you, the Ten Commandments, the New Testament tells us, were never given as hoops that we jump through on our way to heaven or a ladder or a stairway to heaven that we climb. It was always given to show us how far short we fall, how big we are as sinners, and how much we need God's mercy and grace. So underneath this mercy seat, inside this Ark of the Covenant, there are three things there, and all three of those things represent judgment, judgment, judgment. Rebellion, rebellion, rebellion. Sin, sin, sin. What all three of those things represented there underneath the mercy seat were found in this Ark of the Covenant. Violating the Ten Commandments of God. Liars, thieves, blasphemers. Everything that's there on the Ten Commandments. And before you start getting real holy and saying, well, I've not done some of that stuff, the Bible says if you've done one, if you've violated one, you're guilty of all of them. So we're all as guilty as murderers and rapists and everything else before God. All of us. So turn loose of your own lily-white self-righteousness. You have none. And I have none. We all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. That's just a description of it. What does it mean? I mean, how do we apply all this stuff? All the things that I just talked about, the mercy seat, how in the world do we apply it? Maybe to help us understand that, we need to just uh, understand what mercy seat means in the regional language. So let me bring that up, and we'll look at it just for a moment. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament... It literally meant a lid, but it was built from a root word that means to cover, to expiate, which means to kind of pay for, to carry away your sin, to cancel, to appease. It meant to forgive, to offer forgiveness. It meant to be merciful, to pardon, to purge, to reconcile. That's what the word mercy seat in the Hebrew means. 
Think about it. That's what's taking place there. And you'll see that more in just a moment as I talk about the Day of Atonement. But that is what is taking place there. What was inside the Ark of the Covenant? All those things that represented the rebellion of the children of Israel. That represented their sin. So God provides a mercy seat whereby they can be forgiven, their sins can be expiated, can be canceled, where God can be appeased, where they can be forgiven, where God can show His mercy, His pardon, where He can purge our sins, where He can reconcile us to Himself. In the New Testament, in the Greek, it means expiatory, which means an atoning victim. It also means propitiation. That's another big Bible term, theological term, that you find in the New Testament. The root word that it was built upon in the Greek means to conciliate, to atone for sin, to be propitious, which just means to appe- that, that God can be appeased. That's what propitiation means. To be merciful, to make reconciliation for, to even be cheerful because you know your sins have been dealt with. God be gracious, it's also translated like that in the New Testament. To, they should say, to lift up. To lift up or take away, to sell away, to expiate sin. That's what is pictured by the word mercy seat or propitiation in the New Testament. That God takes our sins away because of the blood that was applied to the mercy seat. By the way, you'll see that Christ is our mercy seat in a few minutes. And God lifts up and takes away and our sin sells away from us. That's what the words mean. But still, how do we apply that? What does all that mean to us? How was the mercy seat used? I'm going to walk you through something. Found in Leviticus. I'm sorry. Leviticus tells us this. Moreover, talking about the high priest, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat, on the east side, and also in front of the mercy seat. He shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So the priest would go back and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And then in front of the mercy seat. Seven times. What's the number seven in the Bible mean? Completion or perfection. Representing complete atonement. Complete mercy. Because of the blood 
being applied. The high priest went back and he sprinkled the blood of a bull on the mercy seat. Jesus Christ is our high priest. Jesus Christ is our sacrifice, our bull. Jesus Christ is the blood that is applied. But instead of applying the blood of something else, he applied his own blood, perfect blood, God's blood. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. And the blood was applied there. The Bible goes on and tells us this. Then he shall slaughter the goat. There's also a goat, matter of fact, two goats, but one's killed, one's not. You see that in just a moment also. He shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring his blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus shall he do for the tent of the meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. And when he goes in to make atonement for the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out. That he may make atonement for himself and for all his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it. And from the impurities of the sons of Israel, consecrate it. When he finishes atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting and the altar he shall offer the live goat remember I said there were two goats he shall offer one then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the sins of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins and he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of the meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and he shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth to offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. Then he shall offer up in smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as a scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his body. Then afterwards he shall come into the camp. But the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse, their dung, in the fire. Some things are taking place in all those verses right there that I just read to you 
These two goats represent a twofold ministry that you see in the life of Christ. Jesus died as the one goat died for our sins. Jesus also is like this other goat, which by the way, how many has heard the term scapegoat before? You want to know where it came from? Right here. The other goat is a picture or a type of Jesus who carries away our sin. One goat is offered. And then they come over and they confess on the head of that goat. The priest does. And puts his hands on it representing transferring the sins of all the people to this goat. And then there is a man designated to take that goat so far away in the wilderness, it can never, ever, ever find its way back to the encampment of the children of Israel. That gives us a picture of Jesus carrying away our sins. Will you please get that concept? Because people all the time who know Christ will still be carrying their guilt of their past and worrying about their sin in their past. Some have what they perceive to be big sins. Some have what they perceive to be smaller sins. But they're constantly carrying this guilt and worrying about their sin. Listen, if you have received Christ as your Savior, He died on the cross, shed His blood to pay for your sin. He applied His blood to God's throne so that you can be forgiven and have everlasting life. And then He carried it away so far that it cannot ever make its way back to you to where you are held accountable or guilty for your sin. That goat went so far in the wilderness it can never find its way back. Listen, Jesus Christ took your sin and He carried your sin so far away from you. Your sin can never, ever find its way back to your life. I say, preacher, I sure find it a lot. I'm not talking about practical and you giving in a temptation and still committing some sins. We're human. We've not arrived yet. The best that we can, our lives need to be holy places for Jesus. That's why we need to be applying all of this stuff. But we're still human. We will still mess up. We will still screw up in our lives. But as far as God is concerned, the moment you receive Christ as your Savior, all your past sins, all your present sin, every sin that you will ever commit in your life, all your future sin was carried so far away, God can't even see it. Don't sit around with guilt. Don't sit around worrying about what you've done, how you made mistakes, how this happened in your life, how you made this wrong choice in your life. Understand this. If you have received Christ as your Savior, Jesus carried your sins so far away, God can see them no longer. And the only thing that He sees when He looks at you is this blood. The only thing he sees is Jesus Christ. They took the bodies and burned them outside the camp. The Bible tells us Jesus went outside the camp. He went outside the walls of Jerusalem. And there he was offering as a sacrifice for our sins beyond the camp, outside the encampment of the children of Israel. He went there and died on the cross. The Bible goes on and tells us this. Then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. Then afterward he shall come into the camp. 
and this shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work. Let me stop there for a moment. You cannot work your way to heaven. On the Day of Atonement, he said, don't do any work, humble yourselves. Those two things go together, guys, those two concepts. Because people that are trying to work their way to heaven are so prideful, they think that they can be deserving of heaven somehow if they can just do enough. God told the children of Israel clearly on the Day of Atonement, don't work, instead humble yourself. Listen, we have to humble ourselves before God kick pride out the door, admit we cannot be good enough, we cannot save ourselves if we expect to receive Christ as our Savior. It is not this, guys. It is not you saying, well, I'm going to trust in Jesus, but yeah, I'm a pretty good person. But I'll still obey the Ten Commandments, but I'll still work my way to heaven. That is not the way you receive Christ. You receive Christ by saying, I'm bankrupt, I'm a sinner, I can do nothing to work my way to heaven. All I can do is humble myself at the foot of the cross. So he told them to humble their souls, not do any work. And then he says, whether the native, and that means whether the Jew or the alien who lives with you, who sojourns among you, for it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. An annual day of atonement. They did it every year. And it represented God taking care of, dealing with their sins. But they had to do it every year. Jesus is our day of atonement. Jesus going to the cross is our day of atonement. Not to be repeated. Not every year. Once and for all, the Bible tells us, and you'll see that in some verses here in just a moment, Jesus went to the cross and forever paid the penalty for our sins. So what does this matter to us today? Because you might be thinking, oh, this is a neat history lesson about you know, what the Ark of the Covenant was like and you know, what they did and everything like that. How does it become real to us? What does it matter to us? How does Jesus as our mercy seat, as our sacrifice, what difference does it make that Jesus is our high priest, that Jesus is our sacrifice, that Jesus is our blood atonement, that Jesus is our mercy seat. What difference does all of that make? That He is our day of atonement. What difference does it make? Hebrews tells us this, talking about all this stuff we just talked about in, in Leviticus. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens. He's talking about the tabernacle in the temple. He's talking about the way it was designed, how it was laid out, the furniture, the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. Talking about blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Not the blood of bulls, not the blood of goats, but the real heaven. Not the copy of things, not the picture of things, but the real heavenly things. To be cleansed with better sacrifices than these talking about Christ for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands a mere copy or a picture of the true one talking about heaven but instead Jesus went into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us nor was it that he would offer himself often 
as the high priest enters the holy place year after year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, talking about Jesus, he would have needed to have suffered often since the foundation of the world. But instead, the New Testament tells us here, but now, once, at the consummation of the ages, He has been made manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Not need for a high priest anymore. Not need for a day of atonement anymore. No need for anyone to go and sprinkle blood on a mercy seat because Jesus Himself went into heaven as our sacrifice, as our high priest, offered His blood before the throne of God. And He did so as a once and all sacrifice for our sins as He offered Himself. First John tells us this. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. That word advocate's a legal term. It's like you've got a lawyer. Let's say you have been charged with a penalty and you're being tried in court. And it is a death penalty just possibly that may come down for you. And you've gone out and you've tried to find the best lawyer you can find. And he argues the case the best that he can for you. And then it comes time for the sentence to take place. And let's say you are guilty and a death penalty is imposed. No matter how great you might have thought your lawyer was that you're paying all the big bucks to, at that point in time, he's done with you. He's not going to say, wait, wait a minute. I'm going to take the place of my client and you kill me instead. But that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Jesus, as our advocate, took our place and our punishment upon Himself and died on the cross in our place. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation. There's that biblical term again. It means He's our appeasement before God. He did everything that needs to be done in order for us to be forgiven. He Himself is the perpetuation, or you could say, He Himself is the mercy seat for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. We are sinners. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our mercy seat. He is our perpetuation. He shed His blood on the cross for our sins. Romans tells us this. Romans chapter 3, in verse 21 through 25. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, Notice it said apart from the law, not with the law. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough to save yourself apart from the law. The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets both said Jesus would come and do what He did. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Aren't you glad it doesn't say for all those who work? Aren't you glad the Bible clearly says it's for all those who believe? For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. All of us are guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified, though, even though we are sinners, we can be justified, made just like we've never sinned, as a gift, not working for it, not trying to earn it, as a gift by His grace through the redemption, Jesus paying for our sins on the cross. Redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. In other words, 
God display Jesus publicly as our mercy seat. Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross for our sins. We cannot save ourselves by good works. We can't save ourselves by obeying the law. It is by faith, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. And God, as a free gift, makes us just like we've never sinned because Jesus is our mercy seat. Jesus shed His blood for our sins. And you still may ask yourself, well, all right, what difference does it make? What does it matter? What difference does it make to me? This has been hanging up all through this series. And it is a type, I've not said much about it till now, but this is a type or a picture of the veil that, or the curtain that was between the holy place and the most holy place. And behind it was where the mercy seat was located. Behind it was where the Ark of the Covenant was found. That's what this is a picture of. They had it in the tabernacle, they had it in the temple. The Bible tells us this in Matthew. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, He gave up His Spirit at that moment. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks split. Jesus is there on the cross dying for our sins. And in the instant that Jesus cried out, it is finished. Meaning He had done everything that ever needs to be done in order for us to have everlasting life. The Bible tells us at that moment when He died, that veil, that curtain that had been there for so long was torn down and removed. From the top to the bottom to where we now have direct access to a holy God. Our mercy seat is the cross of Jesus Christ where He shed His blood. And when He cried out, it is finished from the top to the bottom. Liberal theologians will say, well, the Bible said there was an earthquake that happened and rocks split open, so it was just the earthquake that tore it. It was 60 feet wide, 30 feet tall, made of animal skins, and it was as thick as a human palm. When Jesus said it was finished and died, God ripped the curtain from the top to the bottom. So you and I have a picture in evidence that it's no longer just a high priest that can walk back into the presence of God. You and I have direct access to holy God because of Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. And through faith in Jesus, a couple of things happen. It gives us hope to start with. It gives us hope because the Bible says this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a high priest that did not have a beginning, did not have an end. He just popped up in the Old Testament, and he's a picture and type of Jesus. Most theologians believe it was a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ, God the Son standing there in the flesh. 
Jesus did this. He went behind the curtain. He Himself entered behind the curtain on our behalf, shed His blood for our sins. And because of that, we have a hope on the other side of the curtain. We have a hope that's in heaven, an anchor that's in heaven that has me secure in God's presence because of what Jesus did. We have hope, and also because of what Jesus did, we ought to have confidence. The Bible says in Hebrews, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, you never could have done it in the Old Testament unless you were the high priest, and then only on the Day of Atonement, and then you had to do it exactly like God said, or you would have died even as the high priest. Never could have done it before, but now because of Jesus, what He's done for us, we have confidence to enter the holy place, God's presence, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil, not this curtain, the veil that was His flesh. Jesus Christ is our curtain into the very presence of God. And since we have a great priest over the house of God talking about Jesus, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled clean and an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. You, will you get that part of it? Your relationship with the Holy God is not based upon your faithfulness. It's based upon His faithfulness. He keeps His promises. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. God promises you when you have faith in Him, your sins are gone. You're in a relationship with Him. You've been birthed into the family of God. You're as well as being behind the veil in heaven right now in the presence of God. And let us consider. A lot of times we read this off by itself, but I want you to notice it's in context of what I just read. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching boil it down this morning you need a mercy seat you need a mercy seat that means you need Jesus Christ because the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus is the place where the blood was applied. He shed His blood as our high priest, as our sacrifice, upon God's mercy seat, so you and I can have mercy, so we can have grace, so our sins can be forgiven. You need a mercy seat. You need Christ. If you don't know Him, why not today, in just a moment, when the band comes to play, why not today? Trust in the Jesus that died on the cross, suffered, shed His blood for you so you can have everlasting life. If you already know Him, just maybe you need to remind yourself today, that's why you have mercy. That's why you can be forgiven. The curtain has been removed. Jesus is our mercy seat. He removed the curtain. We have direct access to Holy God because of what Jesus did on the cross for our sins. I don't think we allow that to be big enough. I don't know if I could even begin to have a concept or a way to put it into words to make it affect your mentality the way it should. But you need to think about that. You, in your sin as you are, have access to holy God because what Jesus did on the cross and pulled the veil down.
direct access to God. That ought to speak deeply to our hearts, guys. It ought to motivate us to do some things. So can I ask you a couple of questions? If you know Christ as your Savior already and you understand you've got direct access to God, we know we have access to God because of what Christ has done for us. Why don't we use it? Why don't we make use of it? Jesus died on the cross, yet His blood suffered for you and me so we can have access to God. Not just so we can go to heaven one day when we die, but you and I right now have access to God. I can pray and walk into the holiest of holies, into the presence of God now because of what Jesus did. So why don't we make use of it? How can we live our lives like we don't need to be in a relationship with God, that we don't need access to God? Guys, we ought to be reminded every day what Jesus did for us on the cross and how that gives us access to God. And we ought to use this great privilege that we have to have this relationship with the Holy Father, with God Himself. Can I ask you something else? Why don't we allow it? to motivate our lives enough that we're concerned enough about each other to spur ourselves on to good works. To help each other be better Christians. To help disciple each other. To help hold each other accountable. Did you see what the verses said a moment ago after it talked about all that Jesus had did for us? So therefore, we need to remember some stuff. We don't need to let some things slide. We need to stimulate each other. We need to motivate each other to good works in light of what Jesus did for us. We don't need to forsake the assembly of ourselves together. Guys, if Jesus died on the cross for you and for me, it's not enough to motivate us to at least show up at church. What in God's name is wrong with us? We live in an area that's pretty bad for that. It's hard to find someone that's not a Christian in Caldwell County. You go knock on a few doors sometimes. I've done it before in the past. And you can talk to people and say, oh, I, you know, I'm a Christian. Uh, I'm a member of this church over here. You can ask them who their pastor is. Uh, well, uh, I'm just saying if someone authentically knows Jesus and they understand the price that he pays, you can have access to God and worship God. Why don't we make use of it? Can I ask you another question? Why don't we encourage each other? On the heels of everything we just read a moment ago about Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, how He's our high priest, how He went back behind the veil for us. He's our mercy seat in light of all that. The Bible says that we're to spur each other to good works. We're not to forsake the assembly of ourselves together, but we're to encourage each other. In light of all that Jesus did for us, why don't we do that? Why don't we encourage each other? You want to know what most churches do? They misread that. Somewhere it's lost in the translation. Somewhere, evidently, because they, they've misread it somehow, or maybe they did some weird Greek word study, or something at the time they did it, but it seems like people think you're supposed to show up at church, and while you're there, you're supposed to backbite and gossip about each other. 
Now, someone's wondering, why did he say that? Is someone doing No, I don't know of anyone doing it here, but I know it happening in church. And you can say amen right there if you want to. Because that's what a lot of church is about. They're a lot more about man-made rules. And if you don't jump through their man-made rules, and they're going to talk about you, put you down, and everything else. The Bible says, in light of what Jesus did for our sins, we ought to spur each other to good works, not forsake the sin of ourselves together. We ought to encourage each other. And more so as we see the day approaching. So in closing, here's your real two questions. They popped them up a little bit early on me, but here's the two questions I want you to consider as the band comes to play. Do I know that Jesus is my mercy seat? Do you? Do you know for sure that Jesus Christ is your mercy seat? Have you trusted in the fact that he poured his blood out for you. Now just in case someone's worrying, oh, that's going to stain, I don't give a hoot. Right now, because of what this is about, I would be proud for us to have stains on our carpet for eternity up here. Do you know that he's your mercy seat? Do you know that? If not, I wouldn't dare leave today. without knowing Christ as my Savior. Because He poured out His blood for you. And if you do know He's your mercy seat, can I ask you a second question? Something you ought to really let haunt you, I think, as a believer today, as the band sings, and as we have this time called a time of decision and asking God to speak to your heart, what difference is it making in your life? Honestly, what difference does it make? That Jesus did this for you, what difference is it making in your life? Let's pray. Father, God, I pray that there's someone here today that doesn't know you. They've never admitted that they're a sinner. They've never turned loose of their own goodness. They've never turned loose of trying to work their way or earn their way to heaven. If there's someone here today that has never just completely humbled himself before you and trusted in the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, God, right now, I pray that you'd give them the faith that they need to do just that. Father, I pray for the rest of us as believers that you would help us to evaluate right now what difference it makes in our lives that you did this for us. What difference it makes in our lives that you shed your blood on the cross for us. God, is it making enough of a difference that we want to spur each other on to live godlier lives? Is it making enough of a difference in our lives to where we don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together, to where we encourage each other as we should? Father, we allow in what you have done for us to transform and change our lives. What difference is it making in our lives? And fathers, believers, if we would have to admit before you this morning that it, we're not allowing it to make the difference it should, help us to come and fall on our face before you and ask for your forgiveness. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.
Daryl will be here at the front. I will be here at the front. Most importantly, God is here and there's a place of mercy for you. If you've not been letting what Jesus did for you as a Christian impact your life like it should, it'd be a real good time to slip out and come and pray and say, God, forgive me. God, help me to let the fact that the curtain's been removed to impact my life more. Maybe you need to visit the Bible back here and read in it just for a moment. This place of light, spiritual illumination. Maybe you need to slip back here and have personal communion with you and your family. Only do it if you do it the right way and if you know Christ as your Savior. We have bread and grapes available for you. Maybe you need to leave some prayer requests at our other station. Maybe you need mercy and you never received Christ. Please come as the band plays.